at first you hear, oh, it's going to snow, and you get excited, of course. You know, we hardly ever see snow here. My name is Stephanie. I am 33 years old. I'm from Houston, Texas, born and raised. I work at elementary school, and I am a new mom, first-time mom of a boy. You know, Sunday rolls in, everything is still fairly normal. It was close to 3 a.m. when everything just went silent. Sunday to Monday was pretty tough. I think we went 36 hours without electricity. Before we went to bed, my, my husband kind of made a, a makeshift tent over our bed since we knew I was going to have to be nursing about every two hours at night. And I couldn't even fathom how it was going to be uh, having a nurse and um, how to keep the baby warm, how to keep my top half warm. We heard the the wind coming in through the window panes, and you can see the draft moving. The sheet that we had placed over us just because of how cold it was. It was ridiculously cold. And I, I wasn't sleeping, of course, because my number one priority was to keep our baby warm and keep them fed. Of course, they tell you, don't, don't go into your car to stay warm. But my husband went out. He started the car. And then my baby and I, we went out to the car once it was warm and we nursed, changed diaper, and we, we did several of those shifts through the night. You know, I have my my mom, she lives on her own and she's 74. You know, Houston is so spread out. Literally, my sister and I live in opposite ends of the city and my mom is in the middle. So we've been trying to call and check in on her. I was able to talk to her this morning and she's doing okay. But, you know, you worry. You worry not being able to, to make that contact. We got electricity again, but you don't want to get too excited. You still prepare, charge all of your appliances because we don't know how long it's going to last. The best thing that we could do is just, you know, the old towel underneath the door to make sure that the air is not coming in. People are struggling. Um, and and it's it's not just that we don't, we can't deal with the cold weather. It's that, you know, we haven't had the infrastructure for it. Lives are being lost and um, it's been pretty traumatic. Welcome to Skim This. In our first story this week, we'll break down how one of America's largest states was brought to its knees by a freak winter storm. And after that, we're bringing you the latest stories about what's going on in Australia, Tokyo, and at Walmart, and giving you the context on why they matter. Then we saw a lot of COVID-related headlines this week. To clear the noise on what's going on with the pandemic, we phoned a friend, a doctor friend. Also on the show, we'll break down the clubhouse hype in a skim minute, hear why vaccine passports might be coming to a country near you, and tell you why, despite all of these earthly matters, some people are focusing their attention on Mars. Oh, and by the way, I'm Alex, one of the producers on this show, and I'll be behind the mic for the next few Thursdays. Without further ado, let's get into the show. Steph and her family are far from the only Texans suffering in the cold right now. The last time I remember snowing in Houston, I was in kindergarten. Uh, which um, that was a while ago <laughs> for me. There isn't a snowplow uh, in Houston or any of the surrounding counties. That's Taylor Coleman. She's seventh generation Texan. I'm pretty proud of that. Coleman says 
Texas is used to extreme weather, but this week was next level. It really started to sink in and people are running out of groceries and pipes are bursting in homes and, and flooding out entire homes. You have people's homes who've been flooded with freezing cold water. They have no power. They have no heat. They have no drinking water. And mostly I'm just really scared because none of us are immune from this. And it's not just Texas. Temperatures have dipped in a pretty extreme way in states all over the U.S. this week. So we wanted to know what's with this weather. Mallory Brook is the owner and chief meteorologist of Nor'easter Weather Consulting. She says a lot of the weird weather we're seeing is linked to something called the polar vortex. The really strong low circulation of really strong westerlies that continue to flow around the pole. We don't need to get into the specifics like what westerlies are. But what you do need to know is that this weather above the North Pole usually just hangs out up there. That is, until it's disrupted by something called a stratospheric warming event. So above where we are in the atmosphere is the stratosphere. When there's massive stratospheric warming events over the poles, it actually in turn breaks down the polar vortex. When it breaks down, the cold is allowed to move out of the poles. And that's what brings it into the U.S. And that's what really starts a lot of these massive cold outbreaks. This exact scenario was actually predicted last month, and now it's come true, as everywhere from the Northeast to Illinois, Oklahoma, and Arizona has been dealing with extreme conditions, including snow and ice storms. Brooke says this type of extreme weather event could become more common in the near future, thanks to, you guessed it, climate change. Extremes are becoming more commonplace. It's hard to look past the hurricane season that we've had the number of Category 5 storms that are churning in the Atlantic. And as we do record higher temperatures, there's a basic point in meteorology that we learn is the warmer the temperature is, the more moisture the air can hold. So as you increase temperature as a whole, you're allowing the atmosphere to hold more moisture, and that's the energy of what weather is and what drives storms. So if we're raising the temperature and we're raising the amount of moisture the air can hold, we're inherently going to have more extreme events. So meteorologically speaking, this week's storm in Texas could actually have been expected. But was it inevitable that at one point, roughly 3 million Texas residents would have to go without electricity or water, some of them for days? Or that more than 20 people across the state had to die in this storm? How did things end up this way? First off, Texas has its own power grid, which is super rare. Its grid is formally separated from the rest of the country because, well, it's the Lone Star State. But that also means Texas can't just borrow electricity from other states. In addition to this Texas grid, you might also be hearing about the people in charge of managing the electricity for 90% of the state. It's a group called the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT. What happened this week was that ERCOT basically lowballed how much electricity the state would need in this storm. But when demand skyrocketed, ERCOT had to turn off some people's power to prevent the whole system from crashing leaving millions in the dark. Side note, this has nothing to do with green energy, despite some conservative politicians blaming frozen wind turbines for the outages. 
Yes, some wind turbines did freeze, but so did some of Texas's natural gas pipelines and power plants, and those supply a lot more of the state's energy. So what now? Texas's governor is now threatening to investigate ERCOT, because how could an organization whose name features the words electric reliability have dropped the ball like this? Politicians are also under fire, including Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who went on vacation to Cancun in the middle of all of this, though he's reportedly on his way back right now. But for people like seventh-generation Texan Taylor Coleman, there needs to be a lot more than promises, investigations, and social media shaming. It is a really scary and sad and tragic and infuriating situation that Texans are living in right now. My grandmother slept in her car. I have other family members that did decide to get together and stay together to to be warm. Truly, it did not have to end this way. As for how much longer we're going to be dealing with this big freeze, more storms are predicted across the rest of the country over the next few days. Longer term, Brooke says, thanks to that polar vortex, winter is going to stick around in parts of the country. But thankfully, places like Texas should get some relief soon. The areas that are dealing with unprecedented cold right now will start to ease up. You'll start to notice some more normal weather coming in. But the areas that can hang on to cold, you know, north of the Mason-Dixon line and heading obviously up closer to the Canadian borders, I think winter is still hanging on pretty good. It's time to quickly recap some stories that have broken over the course of the week and to provide you with a shot of the headlines along with a chaser of context. Our first headline is about the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, which are now taking place in summer 2021, but are still called the 2020 Olympics. Head scratcher, though that's not what the story is about. Instead, it's that there's a new person in charge of organizing the games. Some context. We told you last week how the former head of the Tokyo Olympics, Yoshiro Mori, made some pretty uncool remarks about women. And while we don't know if our story is what convinced him he should step down, he ended up resigning last week after a lot of people called him out for sexism. Now, Japan's new Olympics chief is Seiko Hashimoto. She's one of Japan's two female cabinet ministers, a big deal in a government that's overwhelmingly male. She's also a former Olympic medalist in speed skating. And while it remains to be seen exactly how Tokyo is going to host a safe Olympics this summer, this change in leadership at least marked a symbolic shift for gender equality in Japan. Our next headline comes from Down Under. Facebook has officially banned news on its platform in Australia. The context here is really important because it turns out tech companies have been fighting with the Australian government for months. The reason? The government had proposed to make tech companies, specifically Facebook and Google, pay news outlets for displaying their content. Australia's parliament was expected to pass that into law soon, so Facebook decided to hit unfriend first and ban Australian users from finding or sharing news. This ban has caused a ton of confusion, and media orgs, politicians, and human rights groups in Australia have all called out Facebook because important pieces of information from weather forecasts to official health information and emergency warnings, are also getting blocked. And while this showdown is taking place on another continent, it could set the stage for other battles between government and big tech around the globe. 
Our final headline today hits closer to home. Walmart says it's raising wages for over 400,000 workers to an average above $15 an hour. Here's the context. Walmart is America's largest private employer with a workforce of around 1.5 million people, and the company's doing well. Its sales hit new highs at the end of last year, but this move is Walmart's way to compete with its rivals for talent. Target, Best Buy, and Amazon have already increased the minimum wage for their employees to $15 an hour. And now, Walmart likely feels pressure to match those companies to try to win over potential workers. But even so, it's not promising as much as its rivals. While Walmart's minimum wage is reportedly going to average about $15 an hour, that's not true for every single worker. Some could get as much as $18 and others as little as 11. Also, it's not just private companies that are looking to increase wages. President Biden has proposed raising the national minimum wage to $15. And while it's still TBD if that could make it into law, people are keeping an eye out for what other major companies might raise their wages next. Sometimes you see a headline and it's all you have time to read before you have to go back to work or to bed. But when the topic is really important, like life or death important with COVID, headlines really don't tell the full story. So wouldn't it be nice if you could just call up a doctor friend and be like, Hey, did you guys read that thing in the New Yorker last month about how golf? I read somewhere. I think it was in NPR. Did you read that thing in Mother Jones about... I, I read somewhere. That... Did you read that thing that guy wrote in the sand on the beach? Yeah. Luckily for us, we have that doctor friend. I'm Dr. Kachika Kapali. I'm an assistant professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Medical University of South Carolina. The first headline that I want to ask you about is that cases and hospitalizations in the U.S. have continued to drop since a big peak in January. And I think a lot of people are probably wondering, are we at the end of COVID now? Well, I do wish that it meant that we were at the end of COVID. I think that actually the reason for the drop in cases is due to the fact that we are seeing the decrease in the surge from the holidays. So we had a surge related to Thanksgiving and then Christmas. So we're now seeing that fall happen. But I think that people need to be on guard because we have these new variants that are circulating and we need to be careful because we know that that could lead to increased number of cases, hospitalizations, and potentially deaths. I'm curious if you would then predict that we'll have another spike, or are we vaccinating people at a high enough rate where we might not see one? Well, right now it is a race between the vaccine and the variants. So we are picking up our rate of vaccination. However, we also know that the variants are spreading quite quickly and they are predicted to become the dominant strain of the coronavirus in the United States by probably the end of March. So we do need to remain vigilant about our public health measures in regards to wearing our face masks and maintaining our physical distance and avoiding crowds of people. For our next headline, it comes from the AP. And it says, the World Health Organization authorizes AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine for emergency use. And officials are saying countries that had no access to vaccines will finally be able to start vaccinating their healthcare workers and populations at risk. And I guess I want to know why that wasn't the case before. 
So the reason that hasn't been the case before is much of the vaccines that have been made available thus far have been purchased by resource-rich countries such as those in North America and in Western Europe. So that has been a huge problem. And we don't have enough supply of a lot of these other vaccines to try and be able to vaccinate many of these resource-limited countries. There is the WHO coalition called COVAX, where countries are basically donating doses of vaccines and every country basically puts money into it. However, again, we still don't have enough doses of vaccines. And so now by having the AstraZeneca vaccine approved by the WHO, it can be purchased by all countries and produced by countries that are able to make it in large quantities. So that way countries all over the world will have access to it. So next up, I found this article in The Oregonian that said four fully vaccinated Oregonians have tested positive for COVID. And when I read that, I was like, wait, what? How do you get COVID once you've already been vaccinated? Well, so first of all, I think we need to go back to the results of the clinical trials, right? No vaccine is 100% effective, right? The vaccine trial said that they were 95% efficacious in preventing people from getting COVID. So there are people who do get vaccinated who can still get COVID. The key point is that people who did get COVID did not get very sick. They only had very, very mild disease. And that is the reason that people need to get vaccinated is because if you get vaccinated, there is still a small risk that you can get COVID. But if you do, you will likely develop very mild infection. All right. Next up, here's this headline from the New York Times. The U.S. has its own new worrisome variants. Now, that can't be good, right? Well, first of all, it's not surprising that the U.S. could potentially have its own new variants. We've had very high numbers of circulating virus in communities for months now. The thing is, is that we have not been doing genetic sequencing to really know what's been circulating and what kinds of variants we could be having. This is why genetic sequencing is so important because they help you detect these variants and then they also help us understand how this is affecting what we're seeing and how there are changes in the population. So it's really important for us in the United States to really ramp up the amount of sequencing we're doing to understand how these variants are affecting the population. Yeah, my next question for you is going to be, Are we equipped to actually spot these variants and track them effectively? That is one aspect of our pandemic response that we definitely need to work on. So places like the UK have been sequencing about 10% of their virus genomes, whereas here in the United States, we don't do that much. Now, because of the emergence of these variants, we're doing a lot more genetic sequencing, but really not at the amount that we should be doing. And so we're trying to ramp that up. But to do that, we need adequate resources and funding to be able to do that. Last headline from The Times. COVID-linked syndrome in children is growing and cases are more severe. Now, I remember back around like April and May when there was not a lot that we knew about how COVID affected children. And then I think a lot of people rightly or wrongly, made the assumption that COVID didn't really affect kids. Now that we're a year out, almost a year out from this virus, what do we know about how COVID affects kids that we didn't know a year ago? 
Well, I'm going to put the caveat out there that I'm not a pediatrician, but I think like any emerging infection, we know more about this virus now than we did a year ago. I think that definitely the inflammatory syndrome we've been seeing in kids is something that's concerning. I think that it's concerning, like we're seeing what's being called long COVID now in adults, right? There's some sort of inflammatory process that goes on in people who have COVID is what we see in kids, similar to what we're seeing in some adults. I, we still don't know. There's a lot that we don't understand quite yet as to why certain people, certain populations tend to develop a more significant disease, even though people probably feel like we've been living with COVID forever. We've only known it about a year. There's going to be a lot more that comes out about it as we study patients who have had this disease and we learn more about it. Dr. Kowali, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Today, we wanted to talk about something that we could see in the not-so-distant future, vaccine passports. In recent weeks, countries like Denmark and Sweden have reportedly been talking about launching a kind of certificate, documenting that someone's been vaccinated for COVID-19. This type of passport could be used during international travel, meaning you'd have to show proof of vaccination before entering a different country. This isn't the first time we've heard about this. Australian airline Qantas said as far back as November that it would require passengers to be vaccinated for international flights. But whether these vaccine passports are a good idea is a question experts are split on. So let's look at it from both sides. One of the arguments in favor of vaccine passports is that telling people they'll need one in order to travel will push more people to get vaccinated. Take Mexico, which might benefit from being able to screen travelers without having to choose between making money and potentially having travelers bring COVID into the country. Another country, Greece, is already asking the EU to let it roll out a vaccine passport for tourists. Vaccine passports could also help people prove they're safe to work in critical jobs or make it possible for businesses like movie theaters or concert venues to reopen sooner, if the safety of visitors can be figured out in advance. So that's the case for vaccine passports. The case against them is, we don't know if they'd work, and even if they did, they could worsen social inequalities. First, we still don't know exactly how much protection vaccines offer against new variants of COVID. So simply being vaccinated doesn't mean you're not still at risk or a risk to others. Here was UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres back in December. Governments have the obligation to protect their peoples, but they cannot protect their peoples if other peoples are not protected and uh, uh, nature always strikes back. Plus, we still don't know whether vaccines prevent people from transmitting the virus, even if they don't get as sick themselves. So, for instance, a vaccinated tourist in Greece could easily pass COVID on to their unvaccinated hotel worker. Vaccine certificates could also be forged, something we're already seeing in a few countries. Private companies are working on making digital vaccine passports, but that also raises serious questions about privacy. In the US and a lot of Europe, our personal medical records are supposed to stay private for our protection. And who knows how letting companies access that data could hurt us sometime in the future. And finally, there's the issue of vaccine access. 
While vaccines are supposed to be prioritized to people who are at risk, existing societal inequalities like race or economic status are already getting in the way. Add vaccine passports into the mix, which further reward people fortunate enough to get vaccinated first, and these passports could create bigger disadvantages for groups that are already suffering disproportionately. Whether COVID vaccine passports should or shouldn't exist as the world tries to go back to normal is still up for debate. Over on The Skim's Instagram, we'd love to know what you think about vaccine passports and which side of this argument won you over. Just when we all learned how to use the hottest social media app on the market, TikTok, it might be time to head back to the App Store to download yet another one. Another one. If 2020 was the year of TikTok, is 2021 going to be the year of Clubhouse? Here's what you need to know about the social media app taking the internet by storm in 60 seconds. Clubhouse is an audio-only social media platform. Think of it like tuning into a live podcast or conference call, with video off, of course. You can join or host a convo on any topic, from Bitcoin to books or fitness. And once the conversation's over, it disappears. You can follow your friends or groups who focus on certain topics and hop in or out of live talks as they happen. But before you head to the App Store to hit download, heads up, you'll need an existing member to invite you first. And for the time being, Clubhouse is only for iPhone users. So it seems like this virtual clubhouse is trying to be exclusive, at least for now. The app has been around for about a year since the time IRL Club shut down. So why is it gaining popularity now? A bunch of CEOs and celebs have recently started using the platform. Hey, Elon Musk and Lindsay Lohan. So you can thank them for the clubhouse hype you're seeing online. Clubhouse says it has more than 2 million users and a cushy $1 billion valuation. And now, other tech companies like Facebook and Twitter are reportedly also eyeing making their own audio-forward products. Guess everybody realized people hate turning on their video. How'd we do? Want us to skim a burning question from the news on an upcoming episode? Send us an idea to audio at theskim.com. Before we go today, we wanted to serve up a nice dose of science fiction escapism because we could all use a break from planet Earth these days. Back in July, when most of us were paying attention to more earthly matters, NASA scientists were busy looking up at the sky. Or more specifically, watching an approximately 10-foot-long, 2,000-pound metal object leave Earth and COVID behind on its way to Mars. Which... Five. Five. Four. Engine ignition. Two, it did. One... Zero. And liftoff as the countdown to Mars continues. Now, seven months later, NASA's latest Mars rover called Perseverance landed today, literally, as we were putting the final touches on today's show. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. NASA has been obsessed with getting to Mars for decades. So we wanted to ask, why do we care so much? And not just the U.S. Spacecraft from China and the United Arab Emirates also showed up around Mars this month. So what is it about this pretty inhospitable planet that keeps us coming back? There's so much we can learn about our own planet and our own ecosystem by studying Mars. Its history tracks really parallel to Earth in many, many ways. 
That's Chloe Sackier. She's a systems engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, and her job is literally to help the Perseverance rover land. We also have this really tantalizing potential for terraforming Mars one day, you know, turning it into another mini-Earth that could support humans. But before we get ahead of ourselves and start talking about collecting soil samples, and definitely before we talk about turning Mars into some mini-Earth, Sackier says landing on Mars is hard enough. We take our spacecraft from cruise, the phase that it's been in for the last seven months, down to the surface of Mars. This basically involves going from 12 to 13,000 miles per hour when we hit the top of the Martian atmosphere to zero miles per hour. Making things even trickier, even though you'd think a Martian rover would land on a nice flat surface, Perseverance is supposed to land in... A place called Jezero Crater, which is the site of an ancient uh, lake on Mars, right at uh, the mouth of a river delta. Even though that's way more difficult, Sakier says scientists wanted to do this because... River deltas are really good geological sites for preserving the signs of life. This landing spot, full of cliffs and giant boulders, isn't an easy one, but scientists think it offers the best shot at learning about Mars's habitat. I don't know if it would be quite on the level of little green men, but, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, definitely we can learn more when we have the samples back on Earth. Bringing samples back to Earth. So that's the long-term goal of this latest Mars mission, though that's not going to happen for a while. The Perseverance rover itself will stay on Mars, you know, for eternity. It, it, it makes a new home there. Hold on. Am I starting to get emotional about a Mars rover? The samples that the rover collects, those tubes that are holding all that Martian goodness, will be left behind on the surface, and we will send future spacecraft, future missions, to collect those samples and bring it back to Earth. All right, we were skeptical, but this is the escapist tale we needed. Daring bravery, dreams of a future life, a mission unfinished but sustained with a dying wish, and a promise to one day return. Touche, NASA. It turns out 2021's greatest love story is playing out more than 100 million miles away from Earth. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear, and I'm your host, Alex Carr. Skim This will be back in your feed next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 